Chapter 2, Part 3 of The Curious Lore of Precious Stones by George Frederick Kuhns. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Curious Lore of Precious Stones by George Frederick Kuhns. A necklace from the time of the old empire circa 3500 bc and having for its chief adornment a turquoise pendant rudely fashioned into the form of an ibex was found by the german orient gesellschaft at abusir el melek in 1905 this necklace the parts of which were found about the neck of a body presumably that of a young man was composed of rounded and annular beads of carnelian and shell as well as of flat perforated fragments of turquoise and almandine garnet and an approximately lozenge-shaped bead of amethyst one point seven centimeters long and one point four centimeters broad the chief adornment was the turquoise ibex one point seven centimeters in length and zero point nine centimeters high this figure suggests a comparison with the animal and bird forms fashioned out of turquoise that have been found in indian graves in arizona and new mexico and it probably had the quality of a fetich or at least that of a talisman intended to guard the wearer of the necklace from harm that there was in egypt a strong inclination to use a certain particular stone for a given amulet will be noted in the case of those inscribed with special chapters of the book of the dead this is also true of amulets of certain forms. For instance, the headrest amulet is usually of hematite, as is also the carpenter's square. Of the heart amulets numbering 47 in the rich collections of the Cairo Museum, nine are of carnelian, four of hematite, two of lapis lazuli, and two each of green porphyry and green jasper, carnelian being thus the most favored among the more precious materials. Amulets of animal form are plentifully represented in this collection, figuring a large variety of members of the animal kingdom such as the hippopotamus, crocodile, lion, bull, cow, hare, dog-headed ape, cat, dog, somewhat doubtful, jackal, hedgehog, frog, hawk, cobra and fishes, to which list may be added a four-headed ram and a ram-headed sphinx. One of the special uses of amulets was for seafaring people. All who went down to the sea in ships were greatly in need of protection from the fury of the elements when they embarked in their small sailing vessels. A fragment of a Greek lapidary, probably written in the 3rd or 4th century of our era, gives a list of seven amulets peculiarly adapted for this purpose. The number might suggest a connection with the days of the week, and the amulets were perhaps regarded as most efficacious when used on the respective days. In the first were set a carbuncle and a chalcedony. This amulet protected sailors from drowning. The second had for its gem either of two varieties of the adamas, one, the Macedonian, being likened to ice, this was probably rock crystal, while the other, the Indian, of a silvery hue, may possibly have been our corundum. However, the Macedonian stone was regarded as the better. The third amulet bore the barrel, transparent, brilliant, and of a sea-green hue evidently the aquamarine barrel, this banished fear. The fourth had for its gem the druops, white in the center, probably the variety of agate so much favored as a protector against the spell of the evil eye. A coral was placed in the fifth amulet, and this was to be attached to the prow of the ship with strips of sealskin. It guarded the vessel from winds and waves in all waters. For the sixth amulet, the Ophiochylus stone was selected, 
most probably a kind of banded agate, for it is said to have been girdled with stripes like the body of a snake. Whoever wore this had no need to fear the surging ocean. The seventh and last of these nautical amulets bore a stone called opsianus, apparently a resinous or bituminous material, possibly a kind of jet. This came from Phrygia and Galatia, and the amulet wherein it was set was a great protection for all who journeyed by sea or by river. The ancient treatises on the magic art show that the use of amulets was considered to be indispensable for those who dared to evoke the dark spirits of the netherworld, for without the protection afforded by his amulet, the magician ran the risk of being attacked by these spirits. One of these texts gives directions for preparing an amulet, or phylacterion, for the undertaking. For this a sweet-smelling lodestone should be chosen, and should be cut heart-shaped and engraved with the figure of Hecate. A costly Chinese amulet consists of the diamond, the ruby, and the emerald, to which are added the pearl and coral. Oriental sapphire and topaz are classed with the ruby. An amulet containing these five substances is thought to combine the protecting influences of the different deities presiding over them, and is supposed to lengthen the wearer's life. Sometimes these five princely gems are wrapped up in a paper bearing the names of the respective divinities, to which is added the name of the moon and those of the twenty-seven constellations or houses of the moon. Such an amulet, suspended at the entrance of a house, is believed to afford protection to the inmates. In the language of the ancient Mexicans, blood was called chalchihuatl, or water of precious stones, as the quintessence of what were regarded as the most costly things. Although such poetic designations are in modern times mere figures of speech, among primitive peoples they are more significant, and it is highly probable that with the Aztecs, as with other peoples, the wearing of precious stones was believed to enrich the blood and thus to promote health and vigor, for the blood is the life. That gems had sex is asserted by the earliest writers as well as by many of those of a later date. While this must usually be understood as a poetic way of indicating a difference in shade, the darker varieties being regarded as male and the lighter ones as female, Theophrastus, the earliest Greek writer on precious stones, clearly shows that this sexual distinction was sometimes seriously made, for he declares that, wonderful as it might seem, certain gems were capable of producing offspring. This strange idea was still prevalent in the 16th century, and ingenious explanations were sometimes given of the cause of this phenomenon, as appears in the following account by Royce of Germinating Diamonds. It has recently been related to me, by a lady worthy of credence, that a noblewoman, descended from the illustrious house of Luxembourg, had in her possession two diamonds which she had inherited, and which produced others in such miraculous wise that whoever examined them at stated intervals judged that they had engendered progeny like themselves. The cause of this, if it be permissible to philosophize regarding such a strange matter, would seem to be that the celestial energy in the parent stones, qualified by someone as vis adamantifica, first changes the surrounding air into water or some similar substance, and then condenses and hardens this into the diamond gem. The pearl fishers of Borneo are said to preserve carefully every ninth pearl they find, and place them in a bottle with two grains of rice for each pearl, believing, in spite of all evidence to the contrary, that these particular pearls have the power to engender and breed others. Custom and superstition require that each bottle shall have the finger of a dead man as a stopper. Talismanic influences are taken into account in the wearing of jewelry by Orientals. 
two bracelets being frequently worn lest one member should become jealous of the other, thus disturbing the equilibrium of the whole organism. The piercing of the ears for earrings has been attributed to a desire to chastise the ear for its indiscretion in hearing secrets not intended to be heard, while costly and ornamental earrings are set in the ears to console those parts of our anatomy for the suffering caused by the operation of piercing. In the case of necklaces of brilliant metal, adorned with pendants of glittering stones, the talismanic purpose is to attract the beholder's gaze and thus ward off the mysterious and dangerous emanations set forth by the evil eye. The necklace, or its ornaments, are supposed to perform a similar service to that rendered by the lightning rod in diverting the electric charge. At an early date, the Christian Church registered its opposition to the practice of wearing amulets. At the Council of Laodicea, held in 355 AD, it was decreed in the 34th canon that priests and clerks must be neither enchanters, mathematicians, nor astrologers, and that they must not make what are called amulets, for these were fetters of the soul, and all who wore them should be cast out of the church. This emphatic condemnation of the prevailing usage was not so much a protest against superstition per se as against pagan superstition. For almost if not all the amulets in use in the early centuries of our era bore heathen or heretical symbols or inscriptions. In later times, the invincible tendency to wear objects of this character found expression in the use of those associated with Christian belief, such, for instance, as relics of the saints, medallions blessed by the priest, etc. The amulets of the Jews differed in many respects from those used by Christians. The Mosaic prohibition of representations of human or animal forms imposed great restrictions upon the employment of engraved gems, and the Jew was only permitted to wear or carry those bearing merely characters of mystic or symbolic significance. In Talmudic times, amulets were sometimes hidden in a hollow staff, and they were believed to have more power when concealed from view in this way. They were like concealed weapons, and it was said that, as a father might give such an amulet to a son, so God had given the law to Israel for its protection. In the old French didactic poem, the Roman de la Rose, composed in the 12th century, appear traces of the belief in the magic properties of the precious stones. Chaucer translated this poem into English in the 14th century, and we quote the following lines from his version. They describe the costume of the symbolic figure, riches. Riches a girdle had upon, the buckle of it was a stone, of virtue greet and of machel of might. A stone was greatly for to love, and till a rich man's behove, worth all the gold in Rome and Frise. The mordon wrought in noble wise, was of a stone full precious, that was so fine and virtuous, that whole a man it could make, of pelisse and of toothache. At the trial, in 1232, of Hubert de Burg, chief justiciar, one of the charges brought against him was that he had surreptitiously removed from the English treasury an exceedingly valuable stone, possessing the virtue of rendering the wearer invincible in battle, and had given it to Llewellyn, King of Wales, the enemy of his own sovereign, Henry III of England, 1207-1272. This must have taken place about 1228, when Henry was engaged in war with the Welsh. The precious stones could, under certain circumstances, lose the powers inherent in them was firmly believed in medieval times. If handled or even gazed upon by impure persons and sinners, some of the virtues of the stones departed from them. Indeed, there were those who held that precious stones, in common with all created things, were corrupted by the sin of Adam. Therefore, in order to restore their pristine virtue, it might become necessary to sanctify and consecrate them. 
and a kind of ritual serving this purpose has been preserved in several old treatises. The subject is sufficiently curious to warrant here the repetition of one of these forms. The stones which required consecration were to be wrapped in a perfectly clean linen cloth and placed on the altar. Then three masses were to be said over them, and the priest who celebrated the third mass, clad in his sacred vestments, was to pronounce the following benediction. The Lord be with us, and with thy spirit. Let us pray. Almighty God and Father, who manifestedest thy virtue to Elias by certain senseless creatures, who orderedest Moses, thy servant, that among the sacerdotal vestments he should adorn the rationale of judgment with twelve precious stones, and showedest to John, the evangelist, the famous city of Jerusalem, essentially constituted by the same stones, and who hadst the power to raise up sons to Abraham from stones. We humbly beseech thy majesty, since thou hast elected one of the stones to be a dwelling-place for the majesty of thy heart, that thou wilt deign to bless and sanctify these stones by the sanctification and incarnation of thy name, so that they may be sanctified, blessed, and consecrated, and may receive from thee the effect of these virtues thou hast granted to them, according to their kinds, and which the experience of the learned has shown to have been given by thee, so that whoever may wear them on him, may feel the presence of thy power, and may be worthy to receive the gift of thy grace and the protection of thy power. Through Jesus Christ, thy Son, in whom dwells all sanctification, benediction, and consecration, who lives with thee and reigns as God for all eternity. Amen. Thanks be to God. Conrad of Meggenburg also gives this benediction in his Buch der Natur. Luther tells the following humorous tale of a Jew who was a vendor of amulets. There is a sorcery among the Jews, and their sorcerers think, If we succeed, it is well for us. If we fail, a Christian is the sufferer. What care we for that? But Duke Albert of Saxony acted shrewdly. When a Jew offered him a button, inscribed with curious characters and signs, and asserted that this button gave protection from cuts, thrusts, and shots, the Duke answered, I will test that upon thyself, O Jew. Hereupon he led the man to the gate, hung the button at his neck, drew his own sword, and thrust the fellow through the body. The same fate would have happened to me, said the duke, as has happened to thee. Ruskin, with his keen poetic insight into the working of natural laws, saw in the formation of crystals the action of both force of heart and steadiness of purpose. He thus found himself, consciously or unconsciously, in agreement with the old fancies which attributed a species of personality to precious stones, just as the Hindu regarded an imperfectly shaped crystal as the bringer of ill luck to the owner, so Ruskin sees in such a crystal the signs of an innate immorality, if we may use this expression. Of a crystal aggregation of this type, he writes as follows, opaque, rough-surfaced, jagged on the edge. Distorted in the spine, it exhibits a quite human image of decrepitude and dishonor. But the worst of all signs of its decay and helplessness is that halfway up, a parasite crystal, smaller but just as sickly, has rooted itself in the side of the larger one, eating out a cavity round its root, and then growing backwards or downwards, contrary to the direction of the main crystal. Yet I cannot trace the least difference in purity of substance between the first most noble stone and this ignoble and dissolute one. The impurity of the last is in its will, or want of will. 
There is established a very pretty custom of assigning to the various masculine and feminine Christian names a particular gem, and such name gems are often set together with natal and talismanic gems and with gems of one's patron saint. It is considered an exceedingly good omen when it happens that all three gems are of the same sort. Gems for Feminine Names Adelaide, Andalusite Agnes, Agate Alice, Alexandrite Anne, Amber Beatrice, Basalt Belle, Bloodstone Bertha, Beryl Caroline, Chalcedony Catherine, Cat's Eye Charlotte, Carbuncle Clara, Carnelian Constance, Crystal Dorcas, Diamond Dorothy, Diaspor Edith, I Agate Eleanor, Allelite Elizabeth, Emerald Ellen, Essenite Emily, Euclid, Emma, Epidote, Florence, Fluorite, Francis, Fire Opal, Gertrude, Garnet, Gladys, Golden Barrel, Grace, Grossularite, Hannah, Heliotrope, Helen, Hyacinth, Irene, Iolite, Jane, Jacinth, Jesse, Jasper, Josephine, Jadeite, Julia, Jade, Louise, Lapis Lazuli, Lucy, Lapidolite, Margaret, Moss Agate, Martha, Malachite, Marie, Moldavite, Mary, Moonstone, Olive, Olivine, Pauline, Pearl, Rose, Ruby, Sarah, Spotamine, Susan, Sapphire, Therese, Turquoise. Gems for masculine names Abraham, Aragonite, Adolphus, Albite, Adrian, Andalusite, Albert, Agate, Alexander, Alexandrite, Alfred, Almondine, Ambrose, Amber, Andrew, Aventurine, Archibald, Axonite, Arnold, Aquamarine, Arthur, Amethyst, Augustus, Agalmatolite, Benjamin, Bloodstone, Bernard, Beryl, Charles, Chalcedony, Christian, Crystal, Claude, Cyanite, Clement, Chrysolite, Conrad, Crocidolite, Constantine, Chrysoberyl, Cornelius, Cat's Eye, Dennis, Demantoid, Dorian, Diamond, Edmund, Emerald, Edward, Epidote, Ernest, Euclid, Eugene, Essenite, Ferdinand, Felspar, Francis, Fire Opal, Frederick, Fluorite, George, Garnet, Gilbert, Gedolinite, Godfrey, Gagates, Gregory, Grossularite, Gustavus, Galactides, Guy, Gold Quartz, Henry, Heliolite, Herbert, Hyacinth, Horace, Harlequin Opal, Hubert, Heliotrope, Hugh, Heliodor, Humphrey, Hypersthene, James, Jade, Jasper, Jasper, Jerome, Jadeite, John, Jacinth, Joseph, Jargoon, Julius, Jet, Lambert. This was read for you by Mr. Mike Seventy Nine, also known as Mike Golchinsky, from Lowell, Michigan, United States of America. Thank you. Matthew Moonstone, Maurice Moss Agate, Michael Microcline, Nathan Naturalite, Nicholas Nephrite, Oliver Onyx, Osborne Orthoclase, Osmond Opal, Oswald Obsidian, Patrick Pyrope, Paul Pearl. Peter, Porphyry, 
Philip, praise. Ralph, rubellite. Raymond, rose quartz. Richard, rutile. Robert, rock crystal. Roger, rhodonite. Roland, ruby. Stephen, sapphire. Theodore, tourmaline. Thomas, topaz. Valentine, vesuvianite. Vincent, verd antique. Walter, wood opal. William, willemite. End of chapter 2. This was read for you by Mr. Mike79, also known as Mike Golchinski, from Lowell, Michigan, United States of America. Thank you.